Sunday, we had a great conversation. Kevin uh, led us in a great discussion about how love risks. And the week before that, we had Jeff Walling with us who was talking about how love speaks. Because we're trying to explore this concept uh, that love does. Uh, That love isn't just an idea. It's not just an ideal. It is not just a definition. It is not an emotion or a feeling. It is not something that you fall into. But love is something that you choose. uh, And love is something that you do. And if you do love people, then you will actually do something to express that love. And so we're really trying to get this concept kind of deep into our heart right here at the beginning of the year. Because what we really want to see for the turning point is that we become more and more a church that really is the hands and feet of Jesus. And that we're more and more every day, every month, every year that goes by that we represent our King more and more in the way that we serve one another, in the way that we talk to one another, in, the, in our speech, uh, in how we go about uh, living our lives, uh, the jobs uh, that, that we get, the jobs that we want, uh, the, the kind of careers that we have. We want it all to be an expression of our love uh, for other people, uh, which, I, which I think is just so good for us to be able to really think through and talk about as we're doing this. You know, Kevin talked about on Sunday just the, the idea of... Um, uh, what do you call that guy? What was this? What was the pair? The guy that stopped at the side of the road, and then the Levite went by, and the priest, the Good Samaritan. Thank you. I was a. I just could not think of it. This bodes well for how the whole evening is going to go, right? Right at the beginning. I can't remember one of the most iconic Bible stories in all of Bible. Yes, but I couldn't. I couldn't figure it out. But anyhow, he's just just talking about this concept of being a neighbor and who a neighbor is. Uh, and I think it's so good for us to think about that. And Jesus told this story knowing that this was going to go on for thousands of years, that this idea was going to be talked about for thousands of years because all of us in 2018 were going to need to be able to kind of dig into this concept a little bit and check ourselves in terms of who we view as our neighbors. Uh, and there's a lot in the scriptures about, listen, you need to, Jesus was all about turning things up, upside down. He was all about loving uh, people who are unlovable. And loving your enemies. He was like, yeah, I'm glad you love your your friends. I'm glad you love the people that are good to you. That's easy. That's the easy part. But it's loving your enemies, loving the people that that have lied about you or that have gone behind your back or that have have torn you down. Uh, Loving those people, that's where it's difficult for us. And in our worldly thinking and the way that the world is, we kind of approach things like, well, I, I, I can't love them. I mean, I, I, I'll love the people in my church, I'll love my family, but that guy that always steals my parking space, or that guy that took credit for my idea at work and got the promotion, or uh, that guy that, that lied about me to that girl, so now he's dating her, like, there's that, that's just where it goes too far. I can't, I, I can't forgive that. I can't love that guy. And Jesus was like, no, this, this is what the kingdom is all going to be about, because the kingdom is all upside down. I've been reading the Sermon on the Mount a lot lately and just fascinated by the way that he turns everything upside down. Jesus takes all these things and says, you know, I know that you have heard it said this, uh, but I tell you, it actually, I want you to go deeper than that and I want it to be so much more. And, uh, and so that is the heart of Jesus. That is the heart of our king. That is the heart of this man who we said, Jesus is Lord where we stood up and we declared, we confessed in front of all of our friends, all of our family, anybody who would listen, maybe people we didn't even know. He said, what is your good confession? We said, Jesus is Lord. It means I don't think for myself anymore. I don't plan for myself anymore. I don't make decisions for me anymore. From this point forward, I do what Jesus says. I do what Jesus would do. And so this is what we're called to. Kevin said on Sunday that my neighbor is anyone who needs what I can provide. So if you have something that you can provide for somebody else, then that somebody else becomes your neighbor. And then we have then that obligation from God, from the heart of God, to be able to love them and to be able to give to them what they need. Now, how does that make you feel? Like when that, when, when that starts to roll around inside of your brain, how does that make you feel? When that starts to bump up, against that guy at work that you just can't stand? How does that make you feel? You know, sometimes people will say, oh, being a Christian is hard. I don't know that being a Christian is hard. I think being a person is hard. Yeah. 
being a sinful person, you know, is hard. Because I have selfish desires and I only want to take care of myself, honestly. But Jesus calls me to live in a different way. And is it hard to like, you know, tear off that outer shell and all those, those ways of thinking and those patterns and those habits? Yeah, it's, it's hard, but, you're, but it's like you're ripping off something on the outside and then on the inside it's something that is so much better. And that's the promise of following Jesus. And that, that's, that's what we get to have as we go through it. So... Uh, we were talking about risking, that love risks. Do you have any relationship right now in your life where you are at risk, where you have to choose, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm going to reach out to this person, I'm going to try to connect with this person, but it's a risk in this moment because I'm not sure how this is going to go. Sometimes you walk into your D group after midweek and you have been worried all day about how this is going to go in this D group tonight. Have you ever walked into a D group like that? Raise your hand. Raise Okay, a couple of you have. Yeah, have you ever come to midweek going, oh man, I'm going to have to talk to that person because they, they hurt my feelings and now I'm going to have to say something or I heard them hurt somebody else's feelings and so now I'm going to have to say something and I'm going to have to talk to them and you're walking in going, oh man, it's time to gird up my loins. You know, I mean, and it is, and that, that, that is such a great visual image and I can, I can, one day I will actually demonstrate for you what that means. It's not... It is not this day, but one day I will do that. But you have, you have to gear, gird up your spiritual loins and you've got to go into battle. Brothers, sisters, you've got you to get some courage because you're walking into this situation where you're like, I have to say something, and man, this could, this could go badly. And what is that? emotion. When you're feeling like, oh man, this could go badly, and you know, and your, and your heart starts beating fast, and then and your, your breathing gets really shallow, and then you're, you're, you're just kind of itchy, and uh, uh, you know, and then, and then you just start thinking like, this is ridiculous anyhow. This is, this is, he's, because it's not going to go well. I'm going to say this, and then he's going to go, uh-uh, no, I didn't. And then you're going to go, I'm going to go, I can't believe, why did I even bring that up? Or then he's going to say, well, you, I did that because you said this. And you're like, ah, I can't believe, what am I doing? And then you're going to have to, you have to push through and have that conversation. You don't want to do it. And you just think in your head already, well, this is ridiculous. I'm out of here. Forget it. I'm not, I'm, I'm not sticking around this church. Church is stupid anyhow. Who thought this up? And then you're, you're already at that spot because your fear of what will happen if you risk having a conversation? Or what about when you're trying to talk to somebody about the fact that you actually are a Jesus follower? And, uh, you know, I, I know people, I've, I've got friends who are not remotely interested in being Christians or being anything to do with Christianity. I mean, do you, you, you have those people in your life and you exist with them? They're in this particular circle. You know how you all have all, all these different social circles overlapping? And in this particular circle, maybe it's a hobby. Uh, for me, it's people at my martial arts school, or maybe it's people you play basketball with, or maybe it's just, you know, friends in your apartment complex or something like that, or people that you work with or at your dance studio or something. And you just know, like, you see this person and you just know, like, uh, you know what, I'm not even going to bring up. Because if I bring up, if I risk this, and I bring up this whole thing about church, then they're going to make fun of me for being a church person, because I heard them make fun of somebody else for being a church person, or they're just going to say that, say that Christianity is stupid, or they're, then they're going to ask me what, you know, as soon as they find out I'm a Christian, they're going to say, well, what do you think about gay marriage? And I'm like, really? First thing? That we're going we're gonna to go there first thing? That, that's the discussion we're going to have right now? You know, I mean, can, you, how, can I just be nice to you first? You know, and you're, you're risking putting yourself out there just to say, hey, I actually believe in Jesus. Now, I wonder if Jesus knew that we were going to be dealing with that. Actually, I don't wonder that at all, because in the Bible it says, Jesus told his followers, listen, they're, they're, they're going to make fun of you. They are going to arrest you. They're going to drag you before the court because you follow me. They're going to put you in jail because you follow me. In fact, the thing that we're promised in the New Testament is not prosperity, we, we are, in the, in the New Testament, we don't see promises of if you follow me, your 401k will grow. If you follow me, your relationship will be perfect. If you follow me, all your kids will grow up to be respectful and wonderful human beings and they will, they will obey you. And if you follow me, I will give you the spouse of your dreams. And if you follow me, I will do, none of, the, none of those promises are in, the, are in the New Testament. Did you know that? You know what is the promise that's in the New Testament? persecutions. 
Anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, in America, in 2018, that's not a very popular a position, right? Hey, do you want to come to my church? It's really cool. Because if you become a Christian, everybody will hate you. That's a great sharing tool, isn't it? Well, that doesn't work very well. Hey, if you come to my church, we're going to get persecuted, and it's going to be awesome, and we want more people. Can you come with me? Because I don't want to be persecuted by myself. Like you're looking for misery loves company. You want somebody with you? But see, this is the thing, because it all comes down to this. Are we looking at things through a godly veil or a godly lens, or are we looking at things through a worldly lens? When we look at things through a worldly lens, we want comfort now. We want answers now. We want our heart's desire now. But when we look at things through a godly lens, we realize that God is playing a bigger game and God sees things that are going on that we have no idea about. And God takes us through challenges. Sometimes he allows us to go through really difficult challenges so that our heart can become more free of the false idols that we hold on to. Sometimes he takes us right to the end so that all we can do is get on our knees and go, God, please, you have to help me. You have to help me get through this. And in going to God and developing that relationship, all of a sudden we've grown deeper in our love for him. And all of a sudden we're like, I think I can do this. I can make it through another day. And that is treasure. That is blessing. Is a closeness with God and a security that this is going to be awesome and this is going to be incredible. But we have to take the risk of trusting God. We have to take the risk of talking to people when it's uncomfortable. We have to take the risk of really being able to reach out to other people and figure out, man, I want to help you. I want to be there for you. Now, then it, it can be easy if you approach from like, hey, you want to come to my church? There's a great band. And then there's all kinds of cute girls there. And then there's all this. And it's a great, it's really easy. And it's casual. You can wear shorts. You, I mean, you know, like we can, we can sell it, right? And that way. But then at the end of the day, too, it has to be our life change that we're really talking about. I want you to share your faith with people. I want you to share what Jesus has done for you, like Jeff was talking about two weeks ago. I want you to talk about who you used to be and who you are now. I want, you to talk, I want you to talk about with people who you would have been versus who you are now. You know, I, I do love at my martial arts school being able to talk with my friends there that have known me now over the years that I've been training there. And they, they, they've figured out, even though they don't, they don't like Christianity, they don't really like Christians in general, but they have seen that there is a difference in me and the way that I treat people. And they then are like, Okay, it, it, you can see it doing something in their brain where they're like, oh, well, maybe all Christians aren't bad. And then, uh, then they start telling other people, oh, yeah, you know, he's a pastor. Maybe you should go to his church. I love that when somebody share, invites a friend for me. You know what I mean? I don't even have to do it. That's, a, that's always a nice thing. You know, with, uh, uh, it's how you are and how you live your life that enables you to be able to reach out to people and share your life with them. But are you even willing to take that risk? I wanted to talk tonight about what this feels like to take a risk and to be able to engage people. I wanted to talk about what it feels like because I, what, what I want us to do, like Kevin, I love that vision that Kevin was talking about, about imagine if every single one of us, all 600 of us said, from now until Easter, which is on April 1st, I am going to choose somebody to pour my life into and to love. God, give me one person to love. Give me someone that I can pour my life into. And that has been, or should have been, our prayer for the last few days. And I'm sure that many of us have forgotten it because your life got busy. So I'm reminding you of it tonight. This is what Kevin asked us to do on Sunday, is to pray, God, give me somebody that I can love. And then we're asking you, as a follower of Jesus, to pour your life into that person for the next three months, two months, two and a half months. And imagine if all 600 of us did that. Now, can we just imagine for a second, and we know the parable of the soils, and not everybody that you share your faith with or pour your life into is going to say, where's the water? Why can't I get baptized, right? Uh, that doesn't always happen that way. But just imagine if it did. Let's, let's just go crazy for a second and think that every single one of us is going to meet a friend this week, and we're going to start to get to know them. We're going to tell them about what Jesus has done for us. And then over the next two and a half months, we're able to study the Bible with them and baptize them. And so by, by the time we get to April 1st, instead of 600 members in the turning point, we have 1,200 members in the turning point. Okay? And I, I just want you to picture that for a second. So what would that be like on Easter 2018 if we have 1,200 people? Well, our parking situation would be a little bit different, wouldn't it? 
right? The ushers would have a little bit more, you know, ulcers and ir- irritations, and they, they'd be going to therapy trying to figure out how to deal with things. We'd be, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd be trying to figure out how do we fit everybody in there? Would we have to go to two services? Well, the auditorium only holds 1,137 people. Isn't that right? Something like that, 1,100. So if we had 1,200 members, how, what, like, what would we do? But think about how cool that would be. Can you imagine starting to see all these people becoming Christians over the next two and a half months? And they were the recipient of your faith in Jesus and your love for God. And some of you are going like, there is no way that I can do that. I can't figure out how to pull that off. I totally get it. I totally understand because life feels overwhelming to you right now. You know, this thing, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot the last couple of weeks, how um, Satan, I know many of you heard me talk about this, so I'm sorry, but it's just, it's so mind-blowing to me that Satan is the great accuser, and he was accusing us in heaven before God, but then he got thrown down from heaven, right? And now because of the blood of Jesus, God sees us as holy and blameless, like it says in Ephesians chapter 1. He sees us through the blood of Jesus. So Satan can no longer accuse us to God. He can no longer go to God and say, look at that guy. Look at, how ma- look at how badly he screwed up. See, oh wait, look at that guy. He did it again. Oh, look at that guy. He's saying that. Look at the thoughts. Satan can no longer say that because God says, nope, I see them through the blood of Jesus. But what Satan can do is come to us and whisper in our ear and say, God is not really a good God. He accuses God before us. He says, God doesn't love you. God is not there for you. God won't help you. God hasn't given you everything that you want. God hasn't given you the relationship or the job or the financial security that you want. Therefore, God is not good. And so when we come in on a Sunday or a Tuesday and we are singing these songs about, Lord, you are good and your mercy endures forever, this is us singing through our doubts and pushing through our doubts and believing the theology that is coming out of our mouth so it can get through our brains and through the fog and down to our hearts so that we can go now. God, allow me to be this light to somebody else. I want you to turn your Bibles over to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, starts with this. Since then, okay, so let's stop right there. We're going to go word by word. You're like, oh, this is going to be a long night. Okay, since then, since then what? What is he talking about? Well, first of all, we want to go, okay, who wrote the letter? Paul. Everybody say Paul. That's right. So Paul, the apostle Paul, wrote this letter. And who did he write it to? The church in Corinth, right? So there's a city called Corinth, and Paul is writing this letter to this church in Corinth, and he's talking about all these things uh, as he's going through this letter. I mean, it's really cool. It's a beautiful letter that he writes, and there's some really tough things and some confusing things and some awesome things. But actually, let's back up a little bit and just see what he's talking about. Now, do you remember this verse, chapter 4, verse 16? Does anybody remember this? Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You heard this verse before? Okay, so now you understand this concept. Guys, we're not focusing on what we can see. We're focusing on what is not seen. So then he goes on, chapter 5. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. So Paul is telling the Corinthians the same thing that we're talking about tonight. The things of this world are not the things that we need to be focusing on, but it's the eternal things. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus. We need to set our minds on things above, right? And then he goes, verse 2, Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So what's he saying here? We get to go to heaven. This is what he's saying, right? 
This, we don't have to stay here. It's not this earthly body and these earthly struggles and all this stuff that we have to deal with. We get to be with God in heaven one day, and this is awesome. We need to focus our minds on that and choose to think that way. Therefore, verse 6, Therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Right? I don't want to be here anymore. I'd rather be in heaven. Can I get out of here? Can I stop dealing with this? Has anybody else ever said, Jesus, please come back soon? There's an Everybody Loves Raymond episode that I love where they've, they've been talking about how a comet is going to come down. Like Frank is, is like, one day I'm, I'm hoping that this comet is going to come down and put me out of my misery. And then at the very, the last line of the whole episode, he's looking up, his wife and Marie's telling him something. He's going, come on, comet. You know? And, uh, and so I say that a lot now. We say that in our household when things are just really intense and going crazy. We go, come on, comet. Like, hurry up, Jesus. Would you please come back now? Because I'm ready. I am ready to go. I'm tired of dealing with all these crazy people. But I am quite righteous and ready to be with you in heaven now. Right? And everything is good. Verse 9. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we, Wow. For we make it our goal to please him. We make it our goal to please him. Is that your goal? As we think about, I'm not going to get stuck in this earthly stuff and all of this stuff. Is it your goal to please God? Or is it your goal to have a relationship with God so God can give you what you want? Do you just want to have a relationship with God so that you get to go to heaven? Or is it your goal to please him? I'm trying to learn, like, man, can I get up in the morning and think, God, I want to serve you today. I want to honor you today. Because many times I get up in the morning, I'm like, God, can you please fix these problems in my life today? And I want God to serve me rather than me going, God, it is my goal to please you. Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then... We know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. So the whole context of this verse, he's been talking about this, this kind of tension between staying here on heaven or being able to be with God. But while we're here, we're going to make it our goal to please God. And he goes, since then, we have settled on this. God has decided that we are still here. God has decided. It is not my time to go to heaven. God has decided. He wants me here dealing with these problems. God has decided that he wants me in this church, in this turning point church with all these crazy turning point people. God has decided that he wants me in this small group right, right now to deal with these issues. God has decided that he wants me at this job right now. God has decided that he wants me in this marriage. He wants me with these parents. He wants me in this situation. This is what God has allowed. Therefore, I will trust God. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. Like, okay, then I'm all in for God, and I'm also going to be all in for helping other people know God. Because you know what the majority of people in this world think? Is that God is not good, and God doesn't give me what I want. And we know different. We have a different view on that. Now, some of you are like, I'm not sure I have a different view on that. I know that you don't. That's why I'm preaching this to you, because you need to. All right? And I don't always have a different view on that, but I want to. And I read my Bible and I go, yes, that's who I want to be. Don't you ever read your Bible and go, oh, could I please have their faith? Wouldn't that be awesome? In our staff meeting today, we spent some time talking about uh, the disciples in Acts chapter 1. The guys that were with Jesus, he appeared to them for 40 days after his resurrection, and then he went up to heaven and he said, now just go wait in in Jerusalem. Don't go anywhere else. Go wait in Jerusalem. Something's going to happen. And they're like, what's going to happen? He's like, you're going to be my witnesses in in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But then what were they thinking? Like, what? what, how? How are we going to do that? What's that going to look like? I don't know. They're all in this, I don't know. But man, I want to have their faith. To go, okay, we're just going to hang on and wait. And then the disciples in Acts chapter 2, when Peter stands up at Pentecost and he's preaching, and they all get the tongues of fire, and they're, they're speaking in other languages, and they baptize 3,000 people. And then they're like, oh, that's a big church. That's a lot of baptisms. And so they have to start having to figure out all the small groups for that. And then Kids Point was nuts, and they didn't have anybody that was dealing with that. And all the things are going on, and they're trying to figure out contribution and tithe. And then people are lying about their contribution. And then the people that lie about their contribution are dying. And there's all kinds of stuff. It's Acts chapter 4. Read it later. But it's awesome. I mean, just crazy stuff. I want to have their faith. And then the people are like, man, just bring me a handkerchief that Peter or John had, and it will heal me. I believe that. I want to have their faith. 
The centurion that was like, Jesus, you don't even have to come to my house. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. I want to have his faith. I want to be like that. Since I know what it is to fear God and to understand that, I want other people to have that same faith too. Because I see people that are so miserable. Talked to a friend of mine the other day who got divorced this last year. I've known him for several years, and he's not interested in Christianity at all. And it's very caustic and, and um, just rough, you know, people that are rough around the edges. And, um, and he's one of those guys that kind of good-heartedly makes fun of me for being a Christian. And I'm okay. I good-heartedly make fun of him for being dumb. <laughs> not about Christianity, just dumb in general. So, and then we punch each other, and it's all good. So, um, But I was just so sad for him because now he's figuring out his girls, one's one's 16 and one's 21, and then his his ex-wife, and then how that is and how bad his ex-wife is for his girls and how his girls are this and that. I was just so sad because I want him to have what I have. And that's it. I want to persuade me. I want people to know that they can have something different. And it is that thought of like, did, did I do enough? Have I, have I invited him enough? Did I reach out enough? I don't think that I did. And that's a feeling I don't like to live with. So he goes into this whole other thing. I'm going to skip down to verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Because therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. And it's this, I mean, I love when you're reading this, you try to imagine what Paul was saying. Like even if he, if he is transcribing this and if he's dictating this, like what was his emotion as he's reading this, you know? These aren't just words that, that we have to read. And I mean, believe me, you can read the Bible and take all of the power and the passion right out of it, can't you? But sometimes you've got to put the passion and the power into it when you think about these words. Therefore, I mean, he's going through Christ's love compels us. We're convinced Jesus died for us, and now we're all going to gonna die to ourselves, and we're going to live for him. And he's going, listen, we don't, we're not looking at anybody from a worldly point of view. Because why? Because we know that something has happened to me. The old is gone. The new has come. I'm a new creation. How awesome is that? How awesome is it that, I mean, I always go back to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians is probably my, one of my very favorite books. I don't want to say my very favorite, but it could be. If there was one, maybe that one. But I love Ephesians in chapter 1 where he talks about how since before the creation of the world, God chose to see us as holy and blameless in his sight. He chose to see us that way. I don't deserve that. I am not holy, I am not blameless, but God chooses to see me like that and in his eyes I become a new creation. Because of the blood of Jesus, I become a new creation in my relationship with God, I am new. And now I am blameless before God, I don't have to take the blame for the things that I've done. That's amazing. How cool is that to be able to think that? And see, it's not just like, okay, say penance and you get your sins forgiven. Give money, get your sins forgiven. Go to church and be a good boy and you get your sins forgiven. No, it's not that. It's understand this reckless love of God, this God that will like kick down any wall and, and get light into every single corner and move everything out of the way so that he can convince you how much he loves you. This relentless God that will chase you to the ends of the earth to tell you that you are important and that you are worth it. I want people to know about that. Verse 18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You are a minister of reconciliation. You have been given the charge to help reconcile people to God. They are far from God and they need to get closer to him and they will if you will get into their life. They will if you will share with them what God has done for you. Not all of them will, but some of them will. Many of you are here tonight because someone decided, I'm going to open my mouth and I'm going to talk to that person. Many of you are here tonight because somebody took a risk and said, I want to share with you what Jesus has done for me. Many of you are here tonight because somebody decided to sit down with you and say, I I want to talk to you about what God has done for me. 
When I was studying the Bible, I remember, I don't remember if it was before or after I got baptized, but I remember driving around with Dave Etterbeek in his car and asking Dave all these questions about God and the sacrifice and why do there have to be a sacrifice and why the Old Testament and why this and why that and I don't understand this and I don't understand that. And Dave patiently shared his thoughts with me and shared his faith with me. And I'm so grateful for that. And I'm so grateful for the person that walked into, Tracy went to, we moved here in 1993 in August so that Tracy could go to USC and get her master's. And she's a violin performance major. And so as a violin performance major at USC, you get put into a string quartet as one of your core classes. And so you get assigned the quartet. It's kind of like showing up to play basketball somewhere and they just assign you to a team. Okay, so she's assigned this quartet, and she doesn't know who any of these people are, but she's in her practice room, like one of the very first days that she gets to school. She's in her practice room, may have even been before school started, and this guy knocked on the door, stuck his head in, and said, hey, my name is Andy Grable, I'm actually in your quartet. She goes, hi, that's cool, I'm Tracy Myers. They start talking about violin, and then he goes, oh, and by the way, I wanted to invite you to come with me to my church. First time he met her, I don't know if any of you guys have met my wife, she can be a little bit intimidating sometimes to people. Some people say that, that she's intimidating, especially if she doesn't want to talk to you before Jesus. She, you know, I mean, that, you know, there, there was, so this, but this guy walked into her practice room, interrupted her practicing and said, I want to invite you to come to my church. I'm so grateful for his faith. I'm so grateful that he took a risk. And that he didn't go, well, she looks like she probably, she's probably got it all together. And her response was probably something like, okay, whatever. You know, I mean, she was not that into it. When she came to church the first time, they said, what did you think? She goes, I didn't really like it. And I don't want to come back, but I'd like to study the Bible. Can we do that? (laughs) And I am so grateful that the person that she said that to took a risk and said, I would love to do that. Tracy tells a story all the time about how uh, Grace, it was, uh, her name was Grace. Now it's Whitaker. I can't remember her. Dave, do you remember her maiden name? Grace. But she, uh, she was studying the Bible with Tracy, and she invited Tracy to this uh, campus retreat. And she, Tracy couldn't go on Friday. She goes, I'll pick you up on Saturday morning. But Tracy didn't realize the campus retreat was in Ventura. So she, Grace got up at 5 in the morning and drove all the way back to USC to pick up Tracy to drive her back to Ventura for the campus retreat. I'm so glad that she took a risk and didn't say this isn't worth it. When Anthony Galang would come to my gigs at night. I didn't want to have anything to do with, with church. So Anthony would come out to my gigs where I was playing and just sit there and listen to me the whole night, and then he would help me pack up all my gear and put it in my car. I'm so glad that he took that risk. And then when, and then when it was my, my grandfather passed, and in that moment I was like, I need something. I, I got to talk about this. And Anthony was right there. I'm so glad that he took that risk. And many of you need to be thinking back on your story and remembering the people that risked embarrassment, rejection, so that you could have life, eternal life. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. We need to give ourselves to helping other people know God. So what does this look like? Turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Yeah, I missed the whole, go, go back and read verse 29 later, later, we're Christ ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. But I already said Philippians, so let's go ahead. Philippians chapter 2. So let's, let's talk about what it looks like to take a risk and love your person. Because when, when you're loving your person, it can be inconvenient. So I want to talk about three different areas that we have to learn to love people in. If, as a church, we are going to be successful together in helping people know God. The first area that we have to do this, well, I'm going to talk about loving, uh, loving people, how to make room for people in our own life. I want to talk about how to make room for people in our small groups. And I want to talk about how to make room for people as a church. Because all of us have a responsibility to think about each of those three areas. It's not just what you do individually that matters. But as a community of believers, uh, whether it's our small group or the turning point at large, we have to think together about how do we help more people find their place here in God's story. And so uh, I think about like when, when you're loving somebody on your own, you do have to plan for it. You have to plan time into your life for God to interrupt your schedule. 
Because God will interrupt your schedule. If you ask him to, he will. But here's the deal. If your schedule is so packed from the time you get up until the time that you go to bed at night that you don't have any buffer time in there, then when God interrupts your schedule for something that is so much more important than your schedule, you're going to have an internal battle that's like, oh, no, 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 especially those of you that are type A, calendar, loving people, right? And, and, and you're, you're going to be like, no, I, I wrote down from 3 to 323, I need to be balancing my bank statement. That's, that's what I do from 3 to 323. You know, I mean, you're, you're, you're going to be freaking out a little bit when God says, I want you to stop right now and go love this person. I was thinking today about, I was driving down my street, and I saw this house, and there's a really nice lady now that lives in this house with her son. But before she moved in there, there was an, uh, an elderly lady that lived there. And I was out one day just walking down my street, and I was probably in a hurry, or it may have been on one of my prayer walks. I go out, so when, when stress levels get really high around my house, I go out and walk around the block and pray to Jesus. And uh, I don't know if anybody else does that, but it's very helpful for me. So I was out, anyhow, I'm out, and I'm walking by her house, and I hear this voice saying, help, help. And, I'm, and I look around, and she is, she's sitting in her door stoop, like just sitting on the ground, leaning up against the door, just quietly calling out for help. And thank God I wasn't on the phone in that moment, or I didn't have in my earphones, or I wasn't running or something, but I heard her cry for help, and I stopped, and I looked, and, I, and so I ran up to the door, and I said, what, what do you need? And she, she said, I, I, I can't even remember what she said, but the issue was, Basically, she, she'd started losing some of her, her mental capacity. She hadn't paid her bills. They turned off her water. I think it had been her water and electricity had been turned off, I think, for like a week or two weeks. She hadn't had any, any um, you know, the food was going bad. Maybe it was only a few days with the water. But, like, I mean, I, I, I came into her house, and it was just tragic. But I was trying to, I, I, I had, to, like, the rest of the day, that's all I did was get her some water, figure out who her relatives were, where her family was. Uh, because, and she couldn't remember where to tell me to look, where the numbers were, so we had to slow down and walk through that process. I had to figure out how to get her some food. I had to help her get cleaned up. I had, you know, we had to, and then I started calling some neighbors, and then we all got involved. But the rest of the day was spent helping her, and for the next several days, that's, that, that's what we did as a neighborhood, was help our neighbor because she needed help. And I'm, I'm pretty busy, but I had, to, I had to stop because I needed to stop and be able to give her that help. If you pray for God to bring you somebody to love, your schedule is going to be interrupted. Are you willing? Are you willing to be inconvenienced so that your schedule can be interrupted so that someone else can have life? Would you even pray that? God, Please interrupt my schedule. The older I get, the more order that I really want to have. I don't know if anybody else is like that, uh, but I want things to be a certain way. I want my keys to be hung up on this peg. There's a key rack right inside my door. Mine go on this, on this, on the one on the left or the one on the right. Just depends on what week it is, but if anybody messes that up, it makes me irritated, right? And then Tracy will hang jackets on the, on the, on the pegs where the keys are supposed to go. Or scarves, there'll be scarves hung up on the... I'm like, why, why would you hang that there? The scarves go clearly in the little cubbies where you roll up the scarves and you put... So as, this is as I'm getting older. I, I, didn't, I wasn't always like this. And I'm not sure, is it neuroses? Is it... I, I don't know what it is, but I'm, you know. But for those of you that are like that, are you willing for God to mess things up? Are you willing for the keys to be on the, on the wrong peg? Are you willing for your car to get a flat tire? so that you can meet the tow truck driver who you could share with, who could go to heaven? Are you willing for your car to break down so that you can share your faith with somebody who might be able to go to heaven? What kind of space are you willing to put into your life? And what do you do with the time that you have? What do you do now with the time that you have in terms of reaching out to people and helping people? You know, when you think about a small group, a small group has to think, what if we started to study with five people over the next two weeks? 
Let's say you have five people in your small group and all five of you start to reach out to somebody and all five of those people, even contrary to the parable of the soils, all five of those people are the open soil, right? And they, they're, they're the fourth soil and they're, they're all, all five of them are ready. And they come in and they're, they're studying the Bible. What do you do with your small group to be able to risk loving them? How do you work that out? Well, first of all, do you even have a schedule with your small group right now where, where you could study the Bible even with one person? Some of you have small groups right now, and, and we, you know, as people either, either come to the green tent or transfer into the church, sometimes we'll reach out to small groups and go, hey, we've got this person, and we need to be able to find a great place for them. And sometimes people in here will go, mm, our small group is too big. We can't take anybody right now. We're too busy. So here's the deal. Jesus talked about a parable where he talked about God being the God who says, he wants to make this huge banquet. And he's like, invite everybody to come to the banquet, and there's going to be so much room. And once we get all these people in, go get more people. And if those people don't want to come, go find more people. Your small group should always be a place where you say, I am willing to help anybody that God brings me. Now, we'll figure out how to do it in a way that is not overwhelming, but your spirit should always be, and the small group leader, your spirit should always be, I'm totally willing to do this. But here's what we're dealing with. Tell me if this is wise. Because that's what, that's what Jesus would have us do. I really honestly believe that. I, I can't imagine Jesus being in a small group where he would say, no, we're, we're too big. Now, Jesus would confront people and go, listen, if you want to follow me, this is what it's going to be like. But what, what was he also saying to people all the time? Come follow me. Come follow me. Come follow me. The people that ran up to him, I'm going to follow you. I'm going I'm to be your best disciple ever. He was like, well, this is what it's going to be like. But other people, he went up to him. He's like, come on, come do this. Give up everything. Follow me. It's going to be awesome. Your small group should be a place that welcomes people all the time. Your small group should be a place. Now, you're, you may have to change some things about the way that your small group interacts so that you can figure out how to do this. You may have to give up the, the, uh, the way that you approach your discipleship for maybe three weeks or four weeks so that you don't have your D times maybe the way that you do so that you can have more Bible studies with people. You may have to figure out on Friday nights, we're not going to sit around and have some deep fellowship with our group. We're not going to talk about that. No, we, we need to be studying the Bible. We, we need to have times where we get to bring people in. So your small group has to figure out how to do this. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Now, every parent in this room, I, I, I would bet money that any parent worth their salt in here has this verse memorized because you are teaching it to your kids all the time. And if you don't, you should. And if you're not a parent, go ahead and memorize it. And you probably haven't memorized anyhow, right? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. Sometimes our small groups are places where we go, no, I, I want that person in my small group and that person. These are the people I really connect with. These are the people I feel safe with. And we use that word, I feel safe, as a boundary to keep us from being uncomfortable. God might want you to be uncomfortable in your small group because sometimes growth comes from conflict. And going through that conflict with somebody in your small group is where you're going to grow. What if you said, God, put me in a group with whoever you want me to be in that I can help and that will help me. God, put me in a group where I can help the most people become Christians. Do you pray that prayer or do you pray I want to be in the group that I'm the most comfortable with and the people that are the most like me? I'm concerned when I see some of our small groups that, that are all like the same type of people that you all hang out together and you like the same sports and you like the same uh, music and you, and, you, and you like the same food. If, it, if your group is all the same, that should, that should concern you because the church of Jesus Christ is not the same. It is people from all over, from the, from the east, from the west, from the north, from the south, all these different people coming from everywhere. It's the Jews and the Gentiles that are in here together. It's the male and the female that are in here together. It's all these people that are getting mixed up together, and they get to learn how to live with each other. The book of Ephesians talks about how there's no more dividing wall of hostility, but now we're all fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. It's all in there. That's how your small group should be. God, let me bring as many. How, who else can I help? And then you have people in your life. You have mentors. You have the Bruces. You have Dave and Cece who might talk to you about your small group and go, okay, now hang on just a second. You guys are going too crazy. Thank you for loving all these people. I want to reroute some of these people over here. But they can't reroute people into a different group if all of our groups are saying, nope, we're too busy because we like our little self-contained universe right here. You got to get out of yourself and start thinking, how can I help more people? If your group is too big to accept anybody new right now, then your group is too big. 
If your group is too big to accept anybody right now, you should be splitting your group in the next 48 hours. Some of you need to decide, I need to go lead a small group again. There are people in here who are great small group leaders. You are great Christians. You've been Christians for two decades. And because it got difficult when you started to have kids, you thought, I just can't do this anymore. You got a career. I can't do this anymore. That is not the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus says, listen, I got kids and I got a career. How do I do this? Instead of I can't do this or I won't do this, how do I do this? Can you help me be more like Jesus? I want to be as much like Jesus as I can in this space of life that I am in right now. I got a busy job. Help me to be more giving and more loving. How do I do this? I got problems with my teenage kids. How do I still engage with people and study the Bible with people when I have problems with my teenage kids? How, somebody help me be more like Jesus. That's what our church needs to be as a church that has decided we're going to be more like Jesus no matter what. We're not going to give in to our selfish ambition and vain conceit. But in humility, we're going to consider others better than ourselves. We're going to consider others' needs above our own. And we're going to say, how can I help more people? Now, we're going to take care of ourselves. We're going to take care of our spiritual life. We're going to go to God first. Jesus, when, when Jesus, Mark chapter 1, what did Jesus do? He was out healing people all night, doing all this stuff. They went to bed, and he got up early in the morning for everybody else. And what did he do? He went off to a solitary place to pray because he knew he needed to be connected with God first. And then they all came, we're Jesus, Jesus, where are you at? And he's like, no, I'm not going back over there. We're going to go somewhere else so I can preach. Jesus took care of himself so that he could give of himself to other people. You are a disciple of Jesus, and you must do that. You must think that way. You said Jesus is Lord. It does not behoove you. It is just the most inappropriate thing for you to say, Jesus, I accept your salvation, but I do not want to live with your level of sacrifice. God, help us if we're a church that says that and lives like that. We've got to think bigger. So that's in our small group. As a turning point church, as a church as a whole, how do we help more people? How do we make room for more? How do we love more and give more? Well, on a super practical level, what have we been talking about the last couple of weeks? Sunday morning etiquette. It's our Sunday gathering etiquette. Be at church on time. Show up on time. When you get there, come in. Find a place to, seat, to sit. Listen. Fill in the empty spaces. I mean, all these things that, that, that we're talking about. But even now, I, you know, I want us to move from even talking about the pre-service etiquette to our post-service etiquette. And I want to even expand. We have the three-minute rules. Anybody know what the three-minute rule is? After service is over, you can't talk to anybody that you know for three minutes. That's hard. Some people are like, forget that's ridiculous. I'm not doing that. I understand. I understand. It is kind of ridiculous, but that's the point because we're trying to, we're trying to help our brains make a point. That's how our brains think sometimes. We have, to, we have to see something really kind of like all the way radical over here before we go, oh, I see what I'm supposed to do. Are you, is you, are you, are you looking for people after service? On, on Sunday after church, I was walking around in the courtyard, and I was trying to meet as many people as I could. And Tracy had said, hey, there's some uh, uh, Marcus and Merle Huey brought some friends. They're over there at that table. I'm walking over to the table to meet them, but over at this table, I see this well-dressed gentleman sitting at this table by himself. I know he's a visitor because I know our people, right? He's a guest, and he's sitting by himself. And I see two disciples about 10 feet away having a conversation, and I see two disciples about 10 feet away having a conversation, I see two disciples about 10 feet away having a conversation. Now, what I, many times I'll try to talk to a guest at church, and they don't want to talk to me. And that, that can happen. I understand that. This guy in particular, he was ready to talk. And we had a great conversation we had a great conversation about his wife, about his daughter, about his older daughter from a previous marriage. We had a great conversation about his career. We had a great conversation about his spiritual life. All in 10 minutes, he was, he was wide open and ready to talk. And there were disciples surrounding his table, and no one had stopped to talk to him. When people come to our church, do they feel loved or do they feel ignored? And you are the person who can make a difference in that. You are the one who can decide, I'm going to look for people to, to encourage that I don't know. I'm going to go meet everybody that I can. My high school people, teens, you guys should be thinking this way. What a great skill to learn. I want you to meet as many people as you can. And it doesn't matter if you don't know them. Reject awkwardness. This whole teenage angst, awkward thing, it's a total cop-out. 
by people who want to be selfish. But disciples of Jesus, no matter their age, if they are 45, 25, or 15, disciples of Jesus say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be bold. God, give me boldness, and I'm going to walk up, and I'm going to meet somebody I don't know. So here's what's going to happen. You may walk up to somebody and say, hi, I've never met you before. Have you been coming to church long? And maybe they have been in the turning point for 25 years. And you can say, that is so cool. Tell me what you love about the turning point. I've only been here for two years. I haven't met you yet, but tell me what you love about this place. Tell me how I can serve it more. Tell me what I can do. What do you think? What do you love? I mean, just start a conversation. And if you meet somebody that is a member, just have a great conversation with them. How cool would it be if you knew every single member of the turning point? Wouldn't that be great? I mean, I do. I pray for all of you by name often. Why don't you? I know you're not a pastor. It's not your job. But still, what, what if you knew half the people here? What, what, what if you knew 30% of the people here? And some of you do, but many of you don't. But what if you did? And what if on Sunday, you, you walked into Sunday service, you started looking around, who can I help? Who can I reach? Who can I love? And you helped that friend. Man, if, if I invited someone to come to church, I'm backstage, I'm dealing with the music, I'm dealing with the worship, and afterward, I'm trying to tear down my gear. Man, I, w- I would just love it if I knew, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that if I had a guest walk in to a Sunday service, that there would be disciples who would immediately go, hey, what's your name? Who are you? Who do you know? Oh, that's cool. You know what? Jay's probably busy. Tell me about your life. What's going on? I would love that. And that's the kind of church that we need to be because we need to love people. We need to risk loving people because love risks, love speaks, and love does. So let's really go after loving people this week. Amen? All right. uh, Kevin has a couple things to say. So Kevin Holland, come on up. I love it when someone who's your friend articulates the message that you had on your heart better than you did, (laughs) better than you do. Um, I just, uh, my heart is full. So Jay, seriously, thank you. So, uh, yes, uh, yes. And, and really it's just an overflow. So uh, a couple of things I want to say, um, I have been, you know, talking with uh, Jeff Walling and a number of people, I know a number of pastors, and I have done research on hundreds of churches. And um, churches like countries and and so forth struggle with who they're going to be. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, what's going on in our country at this time, but raise your hand if you've heard. It feels as though we we are struggling as a nation to figure out who we are and who we're going to be. Raise your hand if you've you've heard that recently. Okay, and if, if you feel that, I feel that. Maybe you do, some don't. Uh, but it's not specific to a nation. It's specific to any organization. A family, you know, a nuclear family, a company, uh, a team. How are we going to play, right? Are we going to share the ball or are we going to be an isolation team? A band. Uh, are the band members going to... Um, serve the purpose, serve the MD's vision, or are they going to look for places where they can sort of show how brilliant they are as an individual musician? You see what I'm saying, right? As a church, every church has these different currents. I want to be like Jesus. That's why I signed up. But I also deal with disappointments, frustrations, heartaches, and my own selfishness, and it's a cage match. It's a, you know, WWF wrestling match, and one side is going to win until there's a constant battle. I feel like that's kind of where we are, where we are trying to, we're wrestling with who are we going to be as a church, and we could be what many churches choose to do, which is be a pretty good, better than most, comfortable church, where we we just fill our lives with the sort of the minimum level of devotion to be functional, but we don't want to be uncomfortable because we think that's where that's miserable. But when you talk to older members of older churches who don't have any young people, what's most heartbreaking is to be in a church that dies for lack of dying to themselves. And they, they take the short end, they take the, the, the shortcut, which is comfortability. 
which is good in the moment, feels better in the moment, but long term, it's a slow death. Versus those who say, I'm going to intentionally put a stake in the heart of my own comfort because I believe, number one, that honors Jesus most. And then two, believe it or not, that helps you because Jesus said, if you want to save your life as a follower, what's going to happen? You'll lose it, right? But if you lose your life for me, you will find it. And it's that paradox in Christianity. When I give myself and stop thinking about myself, I find that I'm closer to God and I'm more full as a person of who I'm supposed to be. And I'm holding on and we're holding on to that dream, even though we feel the the gravitational pull to just stop saying the same thing. Stop calling people to be early to church. Stop, you know, all this stuff. Uh, We also have different demographics in our church, uh, as you know. And um, like when you see these polls in our country where X number of people believe this, Y number of people believe that, uh, we have different constituencies in our church. And we have some people, as you know, raise your hand if you know certain people that are always the servers. They're always bringing people. They're always serving. They're always doing. Raise your hand if you, if you know those people, right? Okay. So, okay, I'm not crazy. Thank you for letting me know I'm not crazy. So, and, and we can know this. But then we can have a silent minority of people who just are along for the ride. And what do you do? Do you, do you confront those people, but then they'll leave? Or do you ignore them, and then they will sort of drift away or they'll infect all the other people, you know? It's, it's a conundrum. We're, we're trying to figure all that out. But at the end of it, I'm just telling you that by the grace of God, we're going to insist that our number one, no matter what, is that we want to be like Jesus, and we're going to have the uncomfortable talks. We're going to call ourselves to love our neighbor. When I talked about that on Sunday... I, the spirit put that on my heart. It just, it, it literally shook me to think that I can be an expert, an expert for generations in the law and completely miss the heart of God because I'm into the vertical and I don't even see any of the people around me that Jesus died for. I don't see him anymore. Because I used to do that when I was young. I used to care about people. I studied with people. Man, I get with people. And then I had this guy leave. And this guy borrowed some money from me that he never paid back. And, and this person, you know, they, they, they said they were going to be faithful. But then they stabbed me in the back. And I did that five years ago. But I don't, I don't love my neighbor anymore. I put my time in. Right? I'm sad for you if that's you. Because that's a miserable way to live. If I say I'm a Jesus follower but I really don't follow Jesus, that's a miserable place to be. And we're, what we're saying, guys, is we're for you, but we are choosing the red pill. We are choosing to not go the way of so many groups that many of us grew up in. God helping us, we don't want to go that way. So um, I would really love it, and I believe God is calling us to say this prayer, God Show me one person you want me to love. How many of us, don't raise your hands, but how many of you honestly, even for the past couple days, have even prayed that prayer? It would be better to be honest and say, God, I really don't want to love anybody. I'm tired. The last guy broke my heart. But be open and let God deal with that. Let him, let him, let him heal it. Let him, let him uh, show you it was not in vain. And the and point with this, with the uh, Good Samaritan guy, you know, he had, the dude had problems, but he showed the guy the love of God. And then what God did with it long term is up to him. Here's the thing. Who I, who I decide to love may not become a Christian. <clears throat> this dude that was who had the Down syndrome son, he didn't become a Christian, but I was so proud when I saw him, he saw me. I didn't, I kind of, we were kind of looking at him. I'm older than him. He's, he's kind of, you staring at like, do I? And I know, I recognized him after a while, didn't know his name. It's embarrassing. However, I was proud that I poured my life out for this guy. His name begins with an L, 11 years ago. And he didn't become a Christian, but there was a fondness when we saw each other. There was a good memory. And him and he and God are up to he and God. 
But how I am to him is up to God in me or God in me. And I believe that every one of us, how can I justify not having one person to whom I am a neighbor like the Good Samaritan? How can I justify that as a Christian? Well, it's the same way a priest and a Levite can justify walking by on the other side. And that's what I am afraid of. I don't want a church in whom God has invested so much to become a church of priests and Levites who have less compassion and humanity than non-Christians who, who, who don't even believe in God but still are in touch with basic humanity. So, anyway, I could go on, but I won't. All right. Something encouraging from Sunday? Cynthia Maraduena, I don't know if she's here, and uh, I saw Kim Buckley. Did I see Kim? Is Kim in here? Okay. Kim, what's your friend's name again? Anna Barker. Okay. Anna uh, Barker. Uh, and then um, Cynthia Maraduena mentioned a woman named Gohar to me, an uh, Armenian woman. But what was cool is she said, when you were speaking, and I, I don't, I, I'm not, you know, I don't think it was... I love the idea. I did the best I could. I don't know that. I don't think it was my best delivery, but I love the idea. But what was encouraging to me is she said, both Kim and Cynthia said, when you were speaking, God put that person on that, that he wanted me to love. He brought that person's name and face right here. When you were speaking, because God had been working on me. Hey, I want you to love this person. Don't know if they're open. That's not the point. The point is, what if we had critical mass of 600 of us having one person that we devoted ourselves to loving? It doesn't mean you, you don't love your kids, you don't love your husband, you don't go to work. You do all those things, but you carve out a little window, a little time. Carve out a couple hours a week, call them, how you doing? Something I can do for you. What can I pray for? You want to get together, talk about your family, talk about your career, whatever. I mean, why would we not do that? I mean, are we that stuck? You've heard the term, the frozen chosen. Are we that, you know, are we that just, you haven't heard that? Okay, that's an old Church of Christ term. Where, where you have these churches where they're, they're chosen, but they're frozen, right? Just like, there's no movement. There's no movement. Uh, but it was encouraging. If we thought about it or prayed about it long enough, would God not bring to mind one human being in, in L.A.? I mean, I mean, if, 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 that's, if that's a too high bar, then, man, I got to, it's time for me to do something else. I'm like, I, I'm just saying, every one of us should have that same experience that Cynthia and Kim had. It's a confirmation from the Holy Spirit. Yes, I knew I needed to be about that. And so I'm just pleading with this to take advantage of the opportunity. Something in your heart will come alive when you take a risk to love someone like Jesus did and you see him making you more like him. It will do something for your heart. For you. And I want that for you. I'm not about how many people can, can we reach. I'm about how many of us can be the most like Jesus we can be, and whoever we reach, that's on God. But that's what motivates, that, that's the foundation upon which this church is built, is how, you remember Philippians 1, which I talked about in 2003. I'm about to start and get into a sermon, so I got to stop. But that, that theme verse, Philippians 1.25, Paul said, it would be better for me by far to go and be with God, but it's better for your sake that I stay with you. So I'm going to stay here for your progress and joy in the faith. You guys that were here back in 03 remember me saying that was my theme verse. I'm here when all the bombs are bursting and all we're on DEFCON 1 in the whole movement post in 2003, right? Because I want to be helpful in your progress and joy in the faith. And that's the same motivation that is driving this right now. I don't want us to just drift into frozen, spiritual frozenness. I want, us to, I want us to be the Samaritan, not the priest 
and not the Levite. That's what I want. Does everybody get what I'm saying here? Okay. Um, I would love it. I'm going to make an announcement about FPU, but could you just do something for me that would encourage me, whether or not it does anything for you? No, I want, I want to do something for you. But don't say it yet, but I, want, I would love it if you would say, I know God is for me. Okay? Hear that? Everybody hear that? Say that. Just If, if you could say that on three, just that would encourage me. Okay? One, two, three. I know God is for me. He is for you. He has chosen you. He has called you. Now, we, this, the leadership, are for you. We are on your side. And that's why we refuse to let you settle for less than being your best for Jesus. So, thank you.